exactly why can't hear that sound i we're doing this blind uh I, joseph in the last thing what were you we gonna we'll, say we'll find out how good my engineering skills are you have a i mean i could have run headphones for us if you wanted but. no I, I i prefer the larry king style of doing it <laughs> if that, whatever that means to you yeah um man i don't know how to do like a cold <laughs> I, I'm like not used to all the mood lighting and everything. And well, you're welcome. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Silent Podcast. Today, I'm actually being hosted by my guest, Mr. Miles Belvin. How you doing today, man? Doing well. How are you? Good. I'm uh, okay. <laughs> I, I'm sounds stupid. Like I'm probably gonna cut out the weather talk, but it's like it's been so gloomy and like whatever and it's finally like i don't know why that affects people's mood but it's a real thing oh it certainly does i mean because i'm just like all all this week didn't help that certain releases were just like coming out just the right time you know what i'm talking about yes uh miles had mixed and produced some covers for me recently but most people in the area know him as a trumpet player and an arranger yeah, so um, growing up, my father was a professional trumpet player, and I didn't know any better, and my parents didn't talk about that being a cool thing because I have significantly older siblings. By the time I was growing up, my siblings already had children of their own, and it was just the fun thing. Dad would go off and tour with his band, or sometimes they'd have public shows, and I'd get to go on stage and stuff, and so... He was a trumpet player in a popular cover band and doing some other stuff. And that was just the thing. I thought that's what was going on. And because it was a cover band, I found out by the time I was like in fourth or fifth grade in public school that no one's actually listening to a lot of the songs I thought we were listening to because I just listened to what I heard my dad playing all the time. And I didn't know that was like, oh, his job was that. I just thought that's good music and that's what we do. And so I'm gonna interject yeah. for a second. What what kind of covers like what genre, what era are we talking? Well, so it the we refer to it as top forty. So uh-huh. anything that was on the top forty charts basically ever. And they always gauge audience reaction and stuff. So if the audience is responding more to stuff, they'll keep that. If they stop responding to things, they'll move on. So this was in the nineties. I was born in nineteen ninety two. And so in the mid to late 90s, they were probably doing stuff from the 70s and 80s and early 90s. Just, you know, a lot of Van Morrison, My Girl, and uh, I guess a lot of that stuff still gets played today in the cover bands. But some of the more, quote unquote, timeless songs and then some stuff that didn't age so well. Some uh, stuff like uh, the one that comes to mind is like Give It Away Now. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Some of that's. Some of that type of rapping wasn't, uh, we don't the, look back the on white it boy as, rapping. yeah, we don't look back on that as fondly. In fact, I think there was a, a time where like everyone in the band took a turn rapping on that song. And so there might be, uh, some audio floating around out there of my dad doing that one night. Uh, and he might've had a little bit too much to drink as well. So we'll, uh, I don't know if that's available anywhere on the internet, but, um, if it is, not. you'll find out after the fact <laughs> if you're yeah. okay with me find digging but, into this. Oh, it's just like been playing over me. That that really? that would be great if that would be if you could edit that in there. <laughs> I, I that would be awesome. With that being said, it's like would you kind of like your your family not taken for granted, but it was kind of just it just was what it was 
And yeah, had that realization. I I think the moment I realized that was I was in either second or third grade, and we had a thing where we were writing down like our favorite band. And I can't remember what I wrote down. It was probably like Earth, Wind, and Fire or Tower of Power. And all the kids were like, "Oh, who are they like? Are they like this band? I can't even remember what band or whatever." And I was just like, "Oh, who are they?" And I like had to go try and find them. And of course, internet was not a thing that my family had at the time. And so I had to like go to the public library and ask if they had stuff or get it brought in and come back home and find it on my CD player. Like uh, listen to it. I was like, Oh, this is very different. And I found out that like a lot of the music I was listening to was significantly older than I realized. I thought it was like new releases or every time I heard a new song, the band was doing, I was like, Oh, that must be a new release. And of course my parents also listened to, oldies radio and stuff so that was just how it was i kind of got into like modern i guess you know 2000s rock a little late as a result of that but i remember hearing uh things like disturbed and lincoln park and going oh wow what is these are like totally new sounds and so i always kind of had like a instrumental ear i guess because my dad was an instrumentalist and I was ready to finally like learn that I had hacked away at a piano and stuff, but I wanted to play something and I bugged my dad about playing trumpet. And he was like, well, when you're older, when you're older. And finally I was in sixth grade and he had me like go to work with him one day. Cause he had started, uh, he had been on and off doing some just day job type things to help make ends meet. And he was a route dispatcher for a courier service. and at the end of the day, there wouldn't be a lot of jobs out because they had already dispatched them. So unless something went wrong, he'd just be sitting there. So he'd let me go to work and I'd be in the back room coloring. And then he brought me in and he would practice when he didn't need to do anything because no one else was in the office. And he was like, well, here you go. Here's your chance to finally learn. And and the back of this old office building, I started my journey learning how to play trumpet probably very very badly i just remember being so excited to make noise and stuff and it was like endless after that i just like couldn't not practice couldn't not do stuff but i the whole time i wanted to like learn more about music and do more with music and my uncle who was actually an engineer working um he worked just like as a contractor for nasa and things like that he wanted me to get more into computers because he knew I loved engineering. So he got me some software to try and write music. I didn't realize it wasn't actually for writing music, but he didn't know either. He's not a musician. Yeah. So I was messing around with that when I wasn't allowed to like play trumpet. Okay. <laughs> and so I would like constantly be on this awful, really old computer, barely able to run the software, no MIDI inputs or whatever, just trying to figure out how to, make music in the digital workspace. And so I was just like constantly going back and forth with that. Uh, the day I got a CD player for Christmas, I was just like constantly going through all my parents' CD players because I was not allowed to touch the vinyl. <laughs> and uh, just going over that, I eventually got a stereo system to play tapes and might have ruined one or two, <laughs> not knowing what to do with those. But uh, yeah, I was just like constantly 
into music, then got into college, and I was actually on a degree track for engineering. Mm. Like, I, like mechanical, like, like the STEM, uh, not audio engineering. Yeah, no, no, not audio yeah, engineering yeah, yeah. at all. I was. I just want to clarify for everyone else. Yeah, no, uh, I was. I was on track to be a robotics engineer. Yeah, that was something I wanted to do since I was a kid. I thought that would be really cool. Well, the degree plan I was going for kind of got phased out not really phased out but phased into some other things Mm -hmm. and it just wasn't what i wanted and on top of some family stuff and some harsh life realities i was going through a tough time but the only thing that like kept me happy was when i was with musicians and playing in bands and i was just like doing that more and more and getting more and more upset with school (laughs) and so i just kind of like fell into that wholesale i just went oh i'm just gonna do this now i had already been on the road with a band in the summer before and so i was like well I'm just going to completely do this. So I changed my my path and jumped all in to writing. I finally got an actual notation software program and jumped in with that. I was constantly bugging my uh, community college professors like, hey, what are we like? What can I do with this? Can I put this in front of the band? And of course, they shooed me away. And I was just like taking lessons from everyone I could. And eventually I became an assistant with a youth group in the area, just helping teach kids. I actually was a part of that group when I was younger. And one day we were playing this piece and it was in the wrong key for like, we were supposed to do something with a show choir assisting us. Turns out they had learned it in a different key. And now we have this 20 piece big band (laughs) that didn't have the right key. And they're all young kids. They're not just going to be able to transpose. So like on my way out, uh, I just grabbed the score and I came in the next day with parts Well, the uh, director at the time saw that and about two months later, I was getting a text message from him like, hey, can you maybe do like some edits on this music for me? And slowly he started doing things like, hey, would you be able to rewrite this for this ensemble over here? Here's the instrumentation. Could you do this? And about a year and a half later, I was doing these charts for him just constantly on a weekly basis. And he gave my contact info to some people nine months after like that became a real serious thing. I was talking to him. He was like, yeah, you know, that stuff for the voice just really kind of gets, I'm like, what? Like, yeah, the TV show. I had no idea. I was, I had started doing kind of ghostwriting stuff, just arrangements of other people's music for things like that. So I was doing stuff all over the, like charts that would go out all over the country for people and I became an editor for um, some stuff. I know some stuff ended up on movies. I know some stuff ended up on just various soundtracks and stuff out there. Of course, they were just files sent to me, so I don't know where anything went. Yeah. Uh, but it was kind of a funny moment when um, my mom was over while I was working and she was getting annoyed because I was looping like the four bar, the same four bars of something. Yeah. <laughs> and then three days later, she calls me. Miles, that song, that song, it, it's, it's on American Idol. I'm like, oh, oh wow. <laughs> it oh was like, I, I, it could have been serendipity that that had happened, or it could have just been like that they needed the chart. Cause I was just doing a rhythm yeah. section thing and that's what it was. So whether it was or wasn't, I don't know, but I started doing a lot of different work for people and I became an arranger more than anything, but I was still going to school for trumpet then i got into my production classes and with the production classes at school i found out that the software i had learned was an actual digital audio workstation and so i actually knew all the things i needed to know to do those classes and do things like that 
and I just was like constantly comparing what I was doing to the actual references. Um, the same way I, I did when I learned to write music, I would take my music that I printed and hold it up to the light with the actual <laughs> sheet music. And it's like, Oh, that doesn't look right. How do I edit that? I would like compare That's, my, they need to do that. That's smart. That's like really, yeah. I didn't think it was smart at the time. I just didn't know. So it was like, well, the margin's wrong on the edge of the, I didn't even know it was called a margin. It's like, there's too much space over there. So I had to learn what a margin was and how to get that or, oh, this doesn't look right. And so I'm like reading the manual, like still didn't have like that great of internet or anything at the time. Were you using Sibelius or what? Finale. 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 Okay. So, so for those that don't know. It used to be a requirement that no matter like what you did, you'd have to have take some kind of tech credit. This is kind of changing like when I've been in conversation with some other people. But yeah, basically you have to learn how to use the software to make a composition and or an, an arrangement for print. And that matters quite a bit, more than it should, because I'll I'll talk about my experiences in middle school and just bad scores because <laughs> it really affects how if you're trying to read it, how you play. Like that matters harder for you and i because you and i know but just for anyone who's not in in the space it's like it it matters quite a bit so if you ever want to get into that it's like do exactly that it's like hold up an actual score that you like and it's like does this look correct because if it doesn't then you should fix it (laughs) right i just wanted to get my stuff played as much as possible and i wanted to do more stuff so i found out that if the musicians can't read it (laughs) it's like well don't want to play it yeah yeah or why can't they read it? Or what's going on here with this? So, yeah, I was just constantly checking my stuff. Again, I'd print it off. I'd hold it up to the light. Like, oh, that doesn't look right. Or why did I like reading that chart? Not just the way it sounded, but what did I like about it? Just over the course of years, developing those skills just in the back of my mind. And then I get to university and I have to take these production classes, teaching you to be ready to go and deal with this software or these programs or so you don't go in there and break some very, very expensive equipment uh, just (laughs) without knowing. And so I found out that I actually had a lot of just general knowledge that I didn't even think about. And then as we start doing recording classes and stuff, I'm watching some quote unquote older people in there make some interesting choices. And I'm like, well, when I was watching I love, these that's guys. A, that's a quote for interesting choices. Interesting choices. That's uh, an interesting word choice. Yes, very interesting <laughs> choices. But um, as they were making these choices, I was just thinking back to when I would like find videos of my favorite bands in the studio, or when I was sending charts out to people. They're like, "Oh yeah, this is in pre-production right now. We're going to do a tracking session for our guide and stuff." I was just learning all these things just over the course of years and assimilating. I was like. That's not how anyone I know does that. And sure enough, I would hear it in how they would do that. And I had kind of like a come to God moment where I was in the studio and I wanted everyone in the same room and a studio manager came in and yelled at me for doing that because it'll sound terrible. And he came in, actually stopped us in the middle of recording and made me put the drums in the other room. And it sounded awful. It sounded absolutely terrible. And the second he left, of course, we we reset everything. And later he was like, see, it sounded so much better that we tracked. And the other one was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And just thinking in my head, like, this guy has no clue what he's doing. And I wasn't trying to be rude or anything about it in my mind. I was just like, there are some things that you just have to learn from working with higher-end productions or just being on more productions and experimenting. So I started getting my own equipment and experimenting. And I had had some microphones to just record myself, but... I started taking that a little bit more seriously, just 
adding it in the loop as I was trying to get my trumpet playing better. And so I was recording myself daily and found out that the room you're in actually has more to do with how you sound than anything. And I should have thought of that back when I was in marching band, realizing how different it is playing outside versus inside. Yeah. So I started looking into different microphones and realizing that those don't affect it as much as the room. Uh, So I started like trying to treat my room, realizing like, oh, that's way too expensive. Well, I brought back out my DIY skills from when I was younger and had an odds and ends job working in like a, a carpentry shop, you know, building stuff. Oh, well, does this sound good? Does this not sound good? And then finding out there's some software online. You can check the room nodes using my mathematic skills doing that. And I, it just all started finally coming together. And finally my trumpet playing was good enough to where I could start sending tracks out to other people in bands. And I was playing in a lot of bands around town, just being a trumpet player. And then I'd come home and stay up till 2 a.m. as as much done on a a chart as possible, then get a call crazy early in the morning when I was about to leave for school. Like, hey, can you do two charts today? I need them by 5 p.m. So like in between classes, I have staff paper writing out as much as I can, finding ways to do it, then come home or try to do some of the work on my laptop And I didn't realize that that was just like not what other people were doing. (laughs) I just thought that that's what you do. I tried to get more charts in front of bands, but they, the environment that I was in at the time was, well, we're going to competitions. We're going to contests We're we've got all these shows and a lot of the musicians either couldn't keep up or it just, we, we didn't have the time. And so my stuff really wasn't getting played until finally I had like sent like a CD or a a YouTube link. I can't remember what I sent to some of my professors. Like, Hey, this is this thing I worked on. And then before I knew it, they were asking me for some charts or to do edits and stuff for them. Not like they thought my stuff was bad before, but I think that that kind of pushed it over the edge. I mean, I think I I should also clarify. I was in university for a really long time. I took my time after my degree originally kind of fell through with engineering. I, sat there and realized like, okay, well, I don't want to be in debt if I'm going to do this. So I went to community college for a long time, slowly went through all of the things I needed to do. Never wanted to overwhelm myself because I was making all of my money through music. And I'm proud to say that's what I do now. Uh, This last month, I was contracted to do 20 string arrangements for someone. I Just this past month. Yeah, just this past month, I did 20 string arrangements for this guy's project. Uh, I completed technically three album projects, but one of those was yours. Yes. (laughs) Finishing those tracks that you recorded years ago. (laughs) Um, So I did that. Then I did two albums. One had like six songs. Uh, The other had just like three or four, just mixing or mastering various tracks. It's myself and a couple other people who helped uh, get those to the final state for release. And then in addition to that, I'm currently working on a bunch of my own projects. I play almost every weekend in town, either with cover bands or just specialized groups. Do you want to talk like specifics, like the party bands that you're in? Yeah. So uh, the main one that I'm with right now is called Aura. It's a luxury band. So it's for all of the uh, higher end clients that we get. It's not something that your average Joe Schmo would want, but they do luxury weddings. We fly all over the country. For that, we actually uh, a month ago released a bunch of videos for promo in that, and I handled all of the audio production on that. So I did recording side and the mixing and mastering on those. So you can find those on the, I believe it's aura.band or auramusic.band. You can find those there. 
And then I am a subcontractor for a couple different companies. There's several different music companies out there that contract us for different bands. So like each company owns several different bands. And so I could be playing with any number of those on a given weekend, depending on what my schedule looks like with production cycles and stuff. Uh, there's a band in town called the Vince Lujan Project where I um, am the trumpet player and I do the horn arrangements for that. That's a lot of originals, but also covers. Brad Thompson is a singer-songwriter in town, and when he can afford to have horns, he has me and a saxophone player named Preston Lewis, and we both play in his uh, group and stuff. So that a lot of times that's just weddings, but he'll have specialized events. And then I also play at a lot of different churches. And of course, there's always stuff coming through the studio. Someone needs horn arrangements, and I can say, well, hey, how would you like to also have those recorded? And I contract the horn section and get that recorded. And I can either send them the stems, which is just the different individual tracks, or I can actually add them in myself, just different services I can offer for people. Uh, and then various things, whatever comes up. So like two weeks ago, I was asked if uh, yesterday, which was a Friday, I could mm -hmm. play in a big band in town. So I did that. And that was just like three and a half hours of playing all reading music. So, you know, there's yeah. no send them beforehand. And I know you, you travel quite a bit in the United States. Have you traveled like outside of like the country for any of these? Uh, it's been a or? while. It's been a while, mostly because of the state of the world yes. the past few years. Really when um, I feel like everyone's career goes through different phases. Uh, when I was in university, I had stopped a lot of my traveling because I was trying to finish up some degree stuff. And I felt like my career was more in an arranging phase. But then when the world shut down for a little bit, all the studios closed. Not really closed, closed. But the, if there wasn't stuff to get tracked, well, why are we having it arranged? And so I lost that. So I moved more into a production phase of my life where I was just literally working at the desk, mixing and mastering, doing stuff for clients or recording horns at home, um, teaching and just doing whatever I could. Then after that, I, um, the, the world opened up more and I took more playing stuff just because I had missed it so much. And so I was doing a lot more playing and now I'm back to striking a balance. It hasn't been until like the last four to six months that arranging has come back into my life just because of how things are now that we've kind of caught back up on the production cycle or more people are involved in that. And it's been cool. I actually, um, this summer I'm supposed to help release some stuff that we recorded last year where, uh, it's three different albums, one of which is just all, uh, my arrangements and compositions. Another one is in conjunction with the university. I went to university of Texas at Arlington where it's mostly my compositions, uh, for large ensemble, big band. And then there's another album that's none of my arrangements and stuff, but I'm a uh, mixing engineer on that. And I helped record and get it all together. I made all the guide tracks and everything. And that's the uh, music of Dale Wilson. He is a fantastic uh, arranger composer. And I I've been a fan of his work for a long time. And he composed a suite for the university. And um, that was a while back, but we always wanted to record it. And so we are... We've got almost everything minus saxophones tracked at this point. And so it's going into production this summer, but we recorded a lot of those uh, last summer. So it's just getting things going. And there's always other projects, other 
things on the horizon. The production cycles kind of crazy, but um, I love it. And on top of that, I still somehow have 50 trumpet <laughs> students. So uh, it's busy, but uh, keep a Google calendar and yeah. never turn something down if you think you can do it. I mean, it's good. It's good busy, especially like I, you know, the last three years of everything. It's it's a it's good to be busy. There's a healthy amount of like yeah, state like having stuff to do because when that all happened and you realize it's like well now I like what do I occupy my time with? That's <laughs> that's like the human condition. If you want to know the meaning of life, it's staying busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the same time, I know for a fact I'm a workaholic. I have sure. a hard time. I will stay up all night and not even realize it. That happened just two weeks ago. I just like sometimes when inspiration hits, I, I've learned to just find that. One thing I'll tell my students is they'll be sitting in the room, my older students, and it's clear that they didn't know how to practice. And we, okay, where's North? And they don't know where to point. I'm like, okay, well, that's the same thing. When practicing, you have to find North, you have to find what is going to get you the closest to the direction you need to head to in the shortest amount of time. The same thing with life and the arts in general. I find that when something hits like inspiration, I want that, whatever it is. There was a, my sister had moved to California and then for whatever reason, some things happened and she needed to come back. Well, when she came back with her daughter, she didn't have a place to stay. So she was living with me and, um, (laughs) Uh, it had been a while since that had been the case. Sure. And yeah, yeah. there was, um, I had a, a song by Doja Cat just like on loop and she didn't even know I liked that type of music because yeah. every time she sees me, I'm playing something else or it's hard to separate music from art. And, um, it was just like on loop. I, I get in a state sometimes where I just have songs on loop for like days sometimes, but while I was editing where I don't need to actually be listening, it's more just like go through the, I'll pause occasionally, but you know, just the monotonous stuff. I try to lump all that together. I had a couple of days of editing. It was just on loop. And she just like came into the studio and it was just like, okay, what on earth? It <laughs> like, for whatever reason, that song had hit me and I don't know what it was. And eventually it fades, but I had had the experience when I was younger of, oh, that song right there. It means so much to me. And then I came back to it the next day and it didn't. And I never got that feeling back. I never want to have that uh, again. Yeah. It's like when something hits, when inspiration or mood or whatever hits, you need to not let those feelings go. If you need to sit there and have a good cry, sit there and do that. If you need to sit there and just be excited, you should embrace that feeling because what happens when it is gone? Well, it's gone. (laughs) That's it. This is applicable to like any field, honestly, because in the last episode, Joseph and I talked about being inventors. As like artists and, and and it's true if you're trying to make good art, it's like, you know, basic example, but like Leonardo da Vinci, he didn't he didn't really study painting. He was a scientist. He studied anatomy right. and could apply like the things he observed. Uh, and that's always important, I think, for like a producer like mindset, you know. Right. Where, you know, if if you're really wanting to do this as an engineer and be the the guy, <laughs> right. You have to listen to music. Like it should yes. be simple, but I'll, I'll use an example like, yo, Miles Davis, I know is an inspiration like of yours. It's like, if you're trying to be it's the like, poster behind me, right? Yes, you he, just saw that. No, then... no. I actually, d- I forgot that was behind you. <laughs> I, you just because you all have the it's same subliminal. first name. It is subliminal. <laughs> if that, 
that's your hero. I'm going to use that. No, he's not my hero. <laughs> okay, so well then, who who would be your biggest inspiration then? Well, so um, my well, you asked you always ask about having two songs or something. Well, one of those was by my hero. So oh, okay. let's see if you remember. I'm assuming we're going to be uh, talking about the RH factor in poetry. So, uh, what does RH stand for? Did you put that together? Uh, it, it, it is the initials of the gentleman who heads that, but please tell me his name again. Roy Hargrove. Roy Hargrove. And so he's kind of like a local in-town hero. He went to uh, Dallas Arts Magnet. The first album I ever bought with my own money was actually that album that that came out on. So that was in 2003, the RH Factor first album called Hard Groove. That album was kind of a really cool thing at the time. He took all of his influences because in the 90s, he was just like a jazz trumpet player. But he grew up listening to everything, much like all of us. We're not just whatever genre we, we get put in. And he got kind of sick of his record label being like that. And so he, with a bunch of other like friends, people he went to school with, people he was playing with, they wanted something that was a culmination of that. So rap, hip hop, jazz, funk, fusion, and... um Actually, they, they wear this on their sleeve, but um, it's well known that Snarky Puppy wouldn't exist without those albums oh, coming out. really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, so go look on all their stuff. It's like they were heavily inspired by Roy Hargrove's RH Factor. Yeah. And so even though the RH Factor only released two albums and some singles and stuff, like all that music was a huge impact on all the instrumental communities and stuff and it was able to actually get a broader audience because they'd bring in rappers like common and yeah. people like erica badu to uh be on their tracks and they'd travel with them and stuff so who was featured on poetry the selection we <sighs> i'm listened trying to. to remember who was rapping on it but i know erica's also on that doing so i can't remember i'm terrible with names i was saying um, that's why i had to tell you to but, spell uh, out all right <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah anyways so uh I could have chosen any number of things on there, but um, I wanted something a little more contrasting. Each one of those is kind of a, a journey through emotions, but yeah. the band is also kind of a jam band. So it could go on for however long. If you watch any of the live concerts, uh, they, they set up something to groove over and create an atmosphere to build the song. So th this did come in 2003. Yeah, 2003. 20 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Man, it, it's so transparent, like just knowing like, math and knowing yeah. trends that's like th <laughs> things come back in 20 to 30 year cycles nothing comes back exactly the same but it's like the scene here because i you know we, i try and keep everything pretty like blind like you know fresh ears when we're listening to stuff for the first yeah, time careful not to hit the mic there yeah <laughs> I know, like i talk with my hands and i'm not used to like this professional setup that we have here today <laughs> uh but yeah i was hearing that and it sounded like it could have come like right now uh, I'm I'm sure it was recorded digitally, and you know I heard the shout of like to DFW on there. If, if you're listening along to this, uh, yeah, it it goes places. Like it really is very eclectic, because uh, you know you you hear like the hip hop influence in there and like R and B, and it just it just flows in between like yeah. those genre inspirations without being like here is this section, here is that, and you know. Yeah, I feel like some stuff rides a hard line of it's genre. In fact, I've got a client right now where they sent me a bunch of stuff that was in production for a couple years and they finally want to get it finished. And it's just like the only questions they keep asking me is, does this fit my genre? Is this going to match the playlist or whatever? Like 
I, I don't think that that's an important question. Yeah. And I think that that's what the RH factor set out to do was let's ask the real question. Is it good music? Is someone actually going to listen to this or care? Yeah. Because if they're not going to care, then why are we even doing this? Because there are songs that are trendy and I've, you know, growing up in the cover band scene with the top forties and everything, as my voice continues to crack over here, um, growing up the cover band scene, I've watched all those songs come and go. I've watched what happens with them and everyone knows, even if you like them for now, they aren't timeless. Yep. Exactly. I mean, nothing is that's, that's the beauty of anything. I had a a prompt that kind of stuck with me, like in community college, as far as like what, what is art? very broad question uh <laughs> okay and it and it's it is hard to define but like looking at it scientifically it's like as, as far as like for me my subjective objective opinion on things or, or trying to be as objective as possible it's like what constitutes good art is that the ability of the writer the artist whoever the main creative force is to get that point across in an interesting way miles if you could have a superpower what superpower would you have <laughs> um superpower yeah the more realistic person in me thinking about what i could do is the ability to not have to sleep oh yeah because i am a uh, <laughs> i'm great in the morning but i also know that i'll just stay up late probably just from years of having to play gigs till 2 a.m yeah and if i didn't have to sleep i could get a lot more work done and I am, that's probably unhealthy, truth be told, but. Well, it, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, we just, um, that's the reality is that we have to sleep. That's yeah. how we function as humans. We got to, you know, if we're going to talk about computer language, it's like you just have right. to shut it down every but once in a while. But at the same time, I know that that would just like, let me continue the habit of just filling up my calendar even more. Oh, well now I can take on this meme or that thing I always wanted to do. Now I can do that. And then the dishes still don't get done. Sure. <laughs> and so, well, there's eh. whole, I mean, you know, there's all sci-fi stuff about not sleeping or like, like right. uh, there's a, I mean, it's not the best thing, but there's a whole copy pasta. Oh about, like, yeah. The, there's the sleep experiment, but, uh, but well, still, my fun answer, yeah. my fun answer is flying because who doesn't want to go flying? Oh, yeah. or, as someone who like loves backpacking and stuff, it's cool just being on top of the mountain. Imagine if you could just do that whenever you wanted. So yeah, that's, that's like, my fun answer. My realistic answer is, you know, you don't play that many video games. Do you? I mean, uh, no, I, time, I yeah. when I needed to get my stuff together to become a professional trumpet player in college, I, that was the thing I cut was that, yeah. and it's been hard to get back ever since I will play with my sister or my nieces and nephews. Yeah. Uh, we'll come over and I'll buy whatever game they want to play. Or we'll hop on a server and it's do an stuff. expensive hobby now. It it can be, but that's everything. Everything yeah. tends towards you know specialty or whatever. Um, the reason I ask is because I've thought about this like a handful of times, and like yo, flying would be awesome. I because you know just enabling that in whatever mm-hmm. whatever game where you can just like fly over everything. That's like always really empowering just to uh-huh. see like everything from higher right. up. Yeah. If I, if I had to give one answer. It would be, it's telepathy, right? To be able to read people's thoughts. Yes. That's like realistically like a superpower I've like Mm -hmm. always wanted. Like, I can't tell you like how badly when we were talking about like art and just people's perception Mm -hmm. of things, like how much I'm just like, I want to see Mm -hmm. what you see. And also like what I'm and just like have that like unspoken communication. And to me, that's what makes 
good art. Well, at the know? same time, seeing what someone else sees, there's still the implied, like, what do you get out of it? Because if we both look at the same painting, even if you see what I see, my experience is colored by everything else. Yes. And that's, that's what I want. Like I, Oh, you want the actual understand the deeper yes. understanding. Yes. Okay. That's, that's why is like to like, not like literally it's like, Oh, like just be able to like look into people's like mind, but it's like that the lens of other people's like thoughts and experiences. Cause that's what informs yeah. um, the color grade. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Cause that, that's what like an auteur is when you're observing the world, it's like here, it, here mm-hmm. it is through my lens, good or bad. Here's yeah. that's my art. And I have a weird process. Like as far as like finding, like, are you familiar with the term? Uh, it's not a, it's not epistemology. Wow. I just, I just blanked on the name of the term, but there's less the idea of like what your beliefs are and, but how you approach your beliefs. There's a word for it that I'm forgetting here. Uh, it's, it's the, what, what you value as far as like creating your worldview. Okay. And, and my version of that is kind of like in the less like naive sense, it's like everyone has their own truth to say. I, I'm more like, I'm like, well, everyone's experiences are valid in life. What can be learned from people I know from like, you know, popular figures or whatever, like what can be learned from everyone's life experience as far, you know, either like, through storytelling or whatever, like what can be gained from that. And I just kind of like a sponge where I'm like, all right, that's not congruent with other things that I've had. And it's like, maybe I need to take a piece out of the puzzle, like in my head yes. like, and then replace it with something else. And it's like, you know, with this new information, uh, not that anyone else's way of going about it is any different. That's just, that's just how I approach stuff. So I'm always like with this, I'm like, tell me it's like, what, like, here's, something I have to show and we'll talk about my picks eventually, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah. Yeah. Having that, that exchange. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about your next selection? Sure. We can talk about that. Uh, it's a want me back. Correct? Yes. Yes. That was a banger. That's also a, a little more recent cut. When did that? I believe that was, was uh, 28, 20, uh, 2018, 2019. Okay. When, when that came out, uh, that was Cody Fry's composition. He yeah. was, uh, on, uh, American idol years ago. And now he, okay. uh, just singer songwriter in Nashville at the time it was more popular and I guess it will become more popular again. Now the world's opened up a lot more, uh, but he wanted a studio live album. Yeah. And it was really only two songs, but you know, all done live with the bands in, in the room, but you know, still studio quality horns are in a separate thing. Drums are more isolated and everything. So, um, he did two songs that he composed and arranged and yeah, just all the Nashville artists and want me back is one of them. It features, um, kind of a guitar hero, Corey Wong. Yep. Yep. And so if you watch the video, he actually, uh, there's a, just like bit of silence in there. He does some fun stuff with that. Nice. Uh, he does some kind of pop culture references with the, uh, song. I could, I've listened to a lot of like what his, what the composition meant to him. So that colors my experience of it, but yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a, cause I, I, I know you have it for like for big band like that. T- and that's like uh large foreign. jazz ensemble, as you might say. Yes. Yes. For, for those who are not in the know, thank you for elaborating. You know, obviously it's all rehearsed, but if you're going to do a recording of, of something, yeah, that spontaneity like live, like where it's that live feel yeah. to it, where it is I spontaneous. Mean, 
I think that a lot of people think that the live feel is just more energy. And I don't think it's quite that. While we tend to think of live recordings as being that, you can go listen to some stuff that's more on the low energy side. And when it's live, it still feels that way. When the band is good enough, I will clarify that. So like a huge inspiration for me is the band Steely Dan, which really isn't actually a band if you go listen to the albums because it's Donald Fagan and Walter Becker's kind of project. They would choose the musicians for the session. And if those musicians weren't great, they'd go pull out different songs to try and fit whoever was going to come into the studio that weekend when they bought it out to like just have people in to try and record whatever their album projects were. But they do have live albums. Now, their live albums aren't exactly the same as what we think of like live albums. If you read through the actual CD booklets and everything with them, you'll find out it'll tell you what dates each song was recorded. So what they did was when they went on tour, they recorded everything and they chose the best ones from the tour to kind of put together. And so it's kind of faked a little bit. And I have a lot of CDs that are kind of like that with live where you find out, oh, that's actually not the order they played them in live. And there's some careful trickery to make the CD more appealing or whatever, or maybe some stuff got cut because if you see how long that concert actually was, and then how long the CD is, something something's a something little different. Give. But it still feels live. Yeah. It still has that general appeal. I used to hate live albums for that reason. Not hate, but just like I really, it was not appealing because mm-hmm. I always liked the the studio sound. Because I, yeah, the, there should be something more interesting to it than because a lot of live albums are like, all right, we have this really good concert, we recorded it. Here you go. Not that not that they're low effort, right? But you know, because there's only so much you can do live mm-hmm. if you've ever done live sound, right? There's a lot of complications there. Um, is there anything else? To, did I? Uh, did we cover? I think we got like a lot of you know your story, like as as a musician, because I I can't remember if I mentioned it already as far as like how we had met, because that's why I clarified at the very beginning because I had first oh, met yeah. you as a studio manager at UTA. I was working there quote right. unquote uh during the the pandemic and uh you were uh contracted by the university to do a lot of the pre-recorded concerts for the jazz ensembles yeah so what ended up happening was um when the world shut down in 2020 in march i i do what a lot of musicians do in the professional level we have to be playing constantly in order mm-hmm. to maintain our playing level but playing at home is not the same nope. thing and so we play in a lot of community ensembles. I don't feel like a lot of people know this about the the high-end music world. So yeah. like we go play in community ensembles if we don't have gigs nice. or we'll we'll try and play in larger ensembles, things to keep our reading up or things to just either give back to the community or give us an opportunity to keep playing. Yeah. And so I was helping out with a lot of community things with the community college and um they reached out and were like we would like you to help us put together some type of virtual ensemble. Mm-hmm. And they even had me featured in one of them just as like a guest artist. And so I put together a thing for how everyone could get a digital audio workstation or use their phone, record video and audio. And I handled all of the uh, pre and post production on those. And we released them and I had sent those out to a couple different people. And of course I was tagged in them online. I think a lot of them got taken down for uh, legal reasons, but I, oh, okay. I, I, I want to post maybe one or two on my 
uh, website whenever yeah. I update it. But yeah, um, they got released and the university had seen them specifically, uh, the director of jazz studies, because he and I are fairly close. And he was like, well, we're having this meeting on this day for what we're doing for this next semester. What, like, can you be there? I was like, yes. Yeah. And so it was just like, how are we going to handle this in this world that we're living in? And it very quickly became a, um, I have to handle this. <laughs> Everyone else just deal with your, your classes and everything. Yeah. And so that was kind of my job. And I, I was just supposed to show up at the studio and set up all the cameras and, get all the, the stems and stuff. And you were the one behind the board that day. Yes. That's how uh, we met anyways. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know how that like played out in your mind. If you even knew I was going to be there or nope. what I was just, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember just being there. Cause I was, I was working a lot and, you know, trying to keep myself occupied mm -hmm. during, uh, the quarantine. Cause in the spring, absolutely like you know nothing like it was off limits we were not on campus at all you know a lot of people kind of had that experience they wanted to have everything ready by fall 2020 but it it was not they were trying to do some things over the summer and it just the the timing was was awful there was like cable shortages mm -hmm. that they're running into as far as uh, you know i remember that happening i remember yeah. uh was like okay i need to hear that back and I, I think I said it to you just like that. I, I remember you being a little flustered and you played it back and it was like, oh, okay. I'm like, well, what's that in the piano? And yes. we soloed it and you weren't monitoring the actual, like, yes. you were just monitoring Lesson the in, not the out. And the piano hadn't gotten tracked properly. And this was after, you know, like our two hour slot recording everything. And I was just like, just give me the stems. I'll deal with it. <laughs> and it was just like, be done with it. And you're like, but I can do this. And we like, no, 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 just. Just bounce it out. Yeah. I remember that's all we talked about after that. Well, that's how I got that impression. Cause I, 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 you know, I didn't know you outside of that space. I, I knew some of the folks that you're working with who had mm -hmm. known you, uh, as you know, the arranger, you know, miles Belvin. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I was like, Oh, like this guy's a producer. Like he knows what he's doing. Like, cause, cause you're also videographing as well. Have, did, yeah. Have we talked about like that at all? Well, so like that came into? about kind of on accident. I wanted to start documenting more of what I was doing yeah. and just have a space. So I actually, this is really cringy, but you can go uh, online and find my practice vlog. Oh yeah. I had <laughs> tried to just record myself with all the, I realized that what I was doing was stuff that people either said they wanted to do or yeah. they didn't realize that you could do. And I thought, well, I'm doing this. Why don't I just put it all out there? And so I, wanted to get better at editing videos. And the best way to do that is to have something the same way. When I learned to record, I had to have recordings, meaning I needed to just record myself. So I got a little GoPro and I started videoing myself and I realized real quickly, Oh, well that doesn't quite look right. And so I reached out to the people I met in production sites yeah. about that. And they started teaching me how to do proper video editing, color grading, what I needed to do, eventually upgraded my camera and stuff like that. Well, when COVID hit, I, um, I always have a fund for continued production mm -hmm. and just continued development. I reached into that fund and got some more cameras just to have more stuff. And I, you know, just from messing around and having more experience with that, knew what to do with a camera mm -hmm. instead of just set it up. And I mean, 
whenever I get a new piece of gear or something, I mean, I spend days, months, every day I have a dedicated time messing with it. So I knew exactly what to do with all the the cameras and everything. And so, yeah, when that hit, it was like the, everything I had been training for. It was that karate kid moment was like, (laughs) oh, you know how to use a DAW. Oh, you know how to like color grade. Oh, you know how to handle low lighting because the lighting in there is absolutely awful. Oh, in the 301? Oh, yeah. In yes. the, the oh, studio yes, yes, at yes. UT Arlington. It's absolutely terrible. Uh, like, I remember I invested in some extra lights after that just because like, I need to set up some more lights. And it was like, especially when, what was it where we did that one senior recital for someone? Oh, yeah. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> I, I can't, um, friend of a lot both of it was ours, a blur. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a friend of both of ours, Jesse Katz, that he was in your first episode. Uh, he said that they, they wanted to have like the uh, where's Miles Belvin drinking game with that. Whereas like, can you, uh, oh, there his, there's his leg. Cause I'm having to move cameras. Cause I only had four cameras nice. and like, I had to keep moving the lighting for all the different songs and everything. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, no, that was at the same time. I think I also learned a lot just from doing with yeah. those. Like it was just as much of a, an experience for me having a, uh, a more steady production cycle again, because I was used to the, to the production cycle of just arranging. Whereas like, Oh, well this is when the songs do and you can get an extension or whatever, but we need it by now. Or can we get a MIDI demo of this or, okay, we need a rough track or a guide track for this. Or when do we have a kind of final mix Mm -hmm. with all that? A lot of the times as a studio manager, no matter how many times any professors like, oh, when you're doing a recording, you need to be prepared and be thinking about these production decisions over and over. It's like student projects are <laughs> absolutely not at all. So that's what yeah. I was used to because I, I tried, you know, my best. You, you can only do so much preparation, you know, especially if you're learning. Right. That, that's the point is you have a safe space to mm-hmm. do that. So, you know, I learned a lot where I was like, oh, I should have thought about this, but at least I had like some idea because I didn't want to waste the other student right. manager's time and, you know, while being there. So I just was not expect on our first meeting and then you know continuing because we, we worked on a lot of these right. pre-recorded concerts and other um yeah videos during that time well i also think that like learning perspective is hard yeah you, like the only way to get perspective is by doing like yes. what was it when i first started working with this one band i wasn't even their producer but um we had this production meeting on this song here's when we're going to the studio and then at our next meeting a week later i came in with charts for the song mm-hmm. based on the demo and um pro tools sessions and all like stems for like the mix down of everything and everyone else was like well uh, i listened to it in the, like before i was about to hand it out. <laughs> yeah i re-listened to it on the car on my way here it was like i had done all this work because i was already used to like high-end production yeah. stuff and i was like oh that's what this is and then when i became one of the head engineers at uh rzo sound in capel um it was like Oh, some of our clientele is they just want the song. They they don't, there's no mixing mastering. It's when they're done, you put it on a flash drive for them and then the, they're done. And we do have some of the higher end clients and stuff, yeah. but we also have things where it's like this guy wrapped into his phone and here's his beat and he just wants you to, to put it together and you can have a discussion with them about how much better this would sound if you did this. Yep. But they're just like, well, no, I'm happy with that. And at some point we need to be okay with that as well. I yeah. just probably don't put my name out there. And if anyone Googles me, um, you'll find my website and you'll find some IMDB credits. And the only credits you're ever going to find is 
some podcasts I did the music for. Yeah. And it's like, well, I not just yeah, yeah, they, they, well, I haven't done any for your podcast <laughs> yet. I'm joking. But um yeah, it's it's crazy that you can be so involved and yet not connected in Yeah. That that, that is a, a little wild. You know, just like you're telling earlier, there's stories of like not knowing even what's out there. Like you, you were just there and like you did it and you're like, yeah. Oh, well, like, and especially in, in like the pop culture sense, like, like a lot of actors like have that. I mean, it's a little different when, you know, you're being filmed where it's like, but they don't necessarily, I mean, they're an actor. They don't have to watch everything their production right. they're a part of, you right. know? No, um, absolutely. But, uh. It it does help having that that relationship, but yeah, if, if you, you 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 can only do so much convincing, right? And um, I think I've told you this before. It's like sometimes I feel like a reluctant leader. Everyone's <laughs> like, I did not want to be a studio manager. I kind of just did because no one else was willing to during that time, and I right. Well, in professional was... cycles, um, there's a lot more trust. Yeah, I find like in the uh, non-professional or getting their professional where they might've hired a bunch of professionals. Usually someone's there and they're like over managing. They're over yep. there. Just like, they want to be there when you're mixing stuff. They want to be there when you're composing and everything. When really it's just like, if you hired me as an arranger, uh-huh. give me as much information. And when I need you, I will contact you yep. or I will send you examples and give you updates as a mix engineer. You've experienced this now that you've finally gotten to work with me on an mm-hmm. actual production. I'm constantly like, hey, here's the latest update on this. Yes. Or you won't get an update today. It'll be tomorrow. Or here's the first version of this. Please note the following things haven't been done to it. Yeah. And that's just like the way you deal with it. Whereas if I'm on something and I'm noticing real quick that like, oh, this guy's going to start hovering over me. I start like, I instead of start, I stop chiming in. Yeah. Whereas in a lot of high-end stuff, like I'm about to do some stuff for a charity organization where mm-hmm. I'm the, uh, the arranger for all yeah. of it. I, and if I don't speak up, they assume that I got all the information and that the yep. arrangement is just going to be handled. There's yep. no asking me, is this doable? If there is a problem, it's my job as the person hired to be the professional to step in and say something about that. Uh, just like as the recording engineer, if something's not getting recorded properly, that's their job. Their job's not to question the song mm-hmm. or the artist's intention. So yeah. in an era where we all get to be producers, it's important to learn when not to wear the right hat. Yep. And so knowing when to like start talking, when to stop talking, it's tough. But the more you work with people, the more you learn their skill sets. I hope that if someone hires me for whatever job, they realize that I won't do other jobs. I might comment on that. Because it's all interconnected. Yeah. If the song you send me isn't great because the arrangement's bad, I'm going to comment on the arrangement. Yep. And I'm going to make suggestions about it. But if you're not going back and re-recording stuff, cough, cough, Jason. <laughs> or, yes. Like, uh, then, all right, this is as good as it's going to get. Here's our options. I'm not going to sit there and, well, now I can't do it because that. It's like, okay, well, you've made that decision now. Here's this. Yeah. And again, it's about trust. Sounds like being at a doctor's appointment or, or <laughs> at least a good doctor where they're just like, they can't tell you to take your medicine. But... Many of my clients refer to uh, my sessions as therapy. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Well, it's like going, going to therapy or one of them said it's like going to church where like, I'm, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to tell you the truth, but we're all happy about it. Yeah. The, the best way to learn things is to 
to just to try stuff if you want. Like, speaking of just trying stuff, are you ready to talk about 100 Gex? Yeah, sure. So uh, that's the band that you had me listen to, right? Yes. Uh, so for, for some context before I, I get your, your feedback mm-hmm. on things, the, uh, they are a experimental duo, uh, consisting, are you familiar with Dylan Brady's work as all well as a, a little bit? Uh, so his name has popped up in a lot of stuff. He's very mm-hmm. popular, uh, as far as his relation to like AG cook, mm-hmm. um, you know, Dorian Electra and that, that space. Cause for the yeah. first album, as far as just trying to categorize stuff, people were trying to like, it's like, Oh, this fits into like hyper pop. Mm-hmm. They're trying to yeah. make a name for it. If you've ever heard to yeah. a, a thousand Gex, uh, this new album is, is charting like crazy, which I, I don't, I don't know what or why like things do. Cause mm-hmm. I'd been, they had a bit of a following with their first record, but, mm-hmm. um, I think it came out a couple weeks ago now and it's yeah. like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. really been, in that contemporary space, like very popular, very sur- not surprised, but at the okay. same time, um, with with that out of the way, do you want to talk about the the first pick? Uh, yeah, I so had my tooth removed. It it still it it's definitely pulling from a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. It pulls from the stereotypical ska. Yes, right. Kind of what a lot of people think of ska, as opposed to you know more contemporary ska. Right. And so like, that's fun. But at the same time, it does also want to pull from some metal and some other yeah. different things within that genre. So it, it's fun. I enjoyed what, what they were doing. I also thought some of it could be done a little bit more successfully, but sure. I know why they didn't. Yeah. If, if you're familiar with it, it's almost like not not intentionally bad because like I had the same reaction when we talk about the next song like mm-hmm. when um a friend of mine first showed me them I'm like mm-hmm. this is repulsive like they straight up one of their songs on their first album it sounds like auditioning different sounds in your dog yeah it, it's a little more purposeful than that but I'm like they're just going through every this is what I do when I'm like I don't know what I'm doing inside of right. like a sp- well the thing which that is- makes it successful is the fact that they have a through line yep they have something that they're going for and so uh there's a lot of cool EQ decisions that they made in the production yeah. that I mean again there I go talking about the production side of things I love but- the production side of it that's the most interesting part mm-hmm. about a lot of it because the songwriting mm-hmm. is basic on purpose I'd say almost yeah it's more about the but yeah go ahead yeah, and so uh, if anyone knows me, that they'll also know that like lyrics are not my strong suit. I yeah, I have to listen to a song several times before I hear the lyrics, and I know that that's a common thing for a lot of people who yes. are mostly an instrumentalist. Uh, and so I found that the storytelling that they told through the actual song was just as disjunct as the lyrics. Yes, which I I find very appealing in an arranger sense. Is like okay. You're you're going all in on the artistic intention here. Yeah. It's like, okay, if we're going to be disjunct, we're going to be disjunct in more ways, and we're going to find a way to do that. And so, um, yeah. Because the, the bridge is more of like a, a pop ballad. Because you kind of hear, like, it, it gave me, like, you know, that 3-4 that swing reminds me of whatever Ed Sheeran song I'm thinking of. Where it's like, I, I think they're really good at having their finger on genre conventions Mm -hmm. and dancing around that. I think that's what makes them interesting Mm -hmm. as someone. Cause, cause I, I, you know, I showed you that to kind of warm you up to it a little bit Mm -hmm. because you're more familiar with Ska than maybe I would. What would you, as far as like 
it's not very representative, but uh, having like ska be more in a in a pop space, like having it. I mean, be, you know, I'm not opposed to it. I I personally, so as, as a horn player, yeah. I find uh, this is a big problem I have with a lot of productions. I, I find that horns tend not to get mixed well, Fair mostly enough. in the balance, and this is across everything, but because it's really jarring to have a horn section just in one channel as sure. in one speaker. Yep. And so a lot of times they'll put reverb or they'll try and double it up. And usually it just ends up like sounding like it's in the center of the image. Anyways, there are some, like we, we solved how to do that in the seventies and eighties mm-hmm. uh, with Quincy Jones and Jerry Hay. Yeah. Uh, even in the sixties, we had kind of solved it, but you know, nowadays it still doesn't get solved. So I find that the horn conundrum with ska bands usually isn't addressed in their music. And right. that was some, so like, as a result of the way this was mixed, the left channel, because the horns are in the right, has this missing frequency spectrum. Yeah. And it, I'm sure it sounds great on the phone and in the, uh, uh, like in most <laughs> people's speakers, but as sure. a dude who has some very nice, expensive monitors in a very well treated room sitting here, is like, oh, yeah, that's noticeable. Yeah. 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 Well, I will say, since we've been talking about it, their first album is very mm-hmm. DIY. <laughs> Yeah. To, to put it respectfully. D-I-W-H-Y? Or, uh... <laughs> What's the W? <laughs> no, D-I-Y. <laughs> oh, I was like, what is it? Oh, never mind. Yeah. I don't know why I wasn't thinking about it. Man, I was about acronyms. Yeah. Um, this has a little bit more production value. Uh, I think the, the overall production was well done on it. Yeah. Well, uh, I can always look this up, but d- does it sound like a real horn? Because cause the line gets blurred because a lot of the first album, I'm pretty sure, was all like MIDI, but... I'm pretty sure they're playing like on the next track, you know, mm-hmm. bass and guitar and a lot of the, you know, that yeah, uh, stringed so instruments. But usually what happens is they'll have MIDI mixed in. Okay. And so like that yeah. happens a lot. Now I personally don't like the sound of it and I'm really, I hate MIDI to that. brass. I, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it, it's not there. It's the, the same way I feel about like digital compression, compressors, audio compressors. It's not the same. It doesn't sound the same to me. Not that they're bad sounding. Yeah. It's just, it's not what I go for in my productions. But then again, I also have access to trumpet and, you know, actual brass players to uh, get things to sound good. So it's pretty, I mean, I, I will say I don't like it unless it's in a comedy sense, which obviously they, they don't take themselves that seriously. Right. Um, well, I don't, I think it was taken properly seriously in this, yeah. it, in the, the conventional way that you, because in ska music, the horns serve as something. They're not... Okay, so in the trumpet world, uh, trumpet actually comes from really three different instruments, right? Right. There's the bugle. Yes. Then there's the cornet. Then there was the trumpet. Yep. And those were all treated three as three separate things. Mm-hmm. If you wanted a trumpet, you would get a trumpet. If you wanted a cornet, you would get a cornet. Right. And the music that was written for them impacts the instrument just as much as the actual instrument itself. Hmm. And most people, when they look at them, they all look the same. And so bugle calls were meant for like battlefield, the King stuff like that. The cornet was a lyrical brass instrument. You would not play those type of things on the cornet. Hmm. The cornet would be like playing a melody. And then the trumpet was more fanfare, but still melodic. It was a good compromise between the two. Well, over time, we they kind they kind of came together as the technology came together. The cornet was more of a later thing because of the way valves came about. 
allowing us to play more notes on the instrument without having to go into the extreme upper register. And so just glossing over a bunch of history in a couple hundred years altogether, eventually we get to a state where 200 years ago, there were these three sects of trumpet, the high brass world yeah. uh, that was not French horn, still kind of revered in society, the trumpet was. People were leaning more towards cornet because it was a lyrical brass instrument that could carry across uh, long distances. And so a lot of our method books are cornet. Cornet is melody, not fanfare. I see. When you think of fanfare as in da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, yeah, something yeah. like that, that's more of a bugle call type fanfare. And then melody, da-da-da-da-da, you know, something like that. We're trying to bridge that gap. And of course, over time, we know that things kind of smear together. We stop calling it a knife. We call it a knife because people are lazy. Yes. It doesn't matter how you spell it. Cockney. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> a, as you uh, go through time, it all gets blurred together. And now everyone's playing the cornet parts on trumpet. Everyone's playing, like, even if you have a cornet, a lot of people will still play that. Or you can even play trumpet parts on cornet unless you get into like a serious symphony or something. Like half the time, I don't play the right instrument on parts because I'm lazy and I don't feel like grabbing the mute or bringing a different trumpet. I'll transpose it. Yeah. And unless you're in a film score or in a like serious concert situation, like I'm contracted for a musical at the end of this month that calls for piccolo trumpet. I'm just going to play it on my B flat trumpet. I'm just not going to do it. And so when you get to ska music, again, having a large gap here, there is a melody being played by brass all in quote unquote unison. It's really octaves. Yeah. There, there's not a lot of harmony that happens with them. And that's what invokes that sound of ska is the octaves between those. Okay. And really that's the point of that. If you have brass and they're doing like chords and pads and stuff, yeah. it's no longer horn section in ska to make a long story even longer yeah. with that. We, we look at other horn sections where it's, going back and forth between fanfare and melody, fanfare and melody, either it's filling in the gaps of everything else, a la an arranger like Jerry Hay, or it's doing something ensemble like the big band writing that, you know, influenced so much of American culture. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because I just, lots of like pop punk bands in the last 10 years or so, like use elements of ska. Right. It's kind of like what... What I, I know. Well, as an arranger, that's important to me yeah. because when someone says they want a sound, I need to know how to get that sound yep. as soon as possible. Ska bands were not high-end music educated bands. Yeah. They were dudes that happened to have those instruments and played yes. them fairly well. So they don't know a lot of writing techniques. There wasn't going to be a bunch of amazing harmony or something coming out of yeah. it. They came up with a melody a and, and then like, hey, yeah. yo, dude on the trombone, play this. All right, cool. Now trumpet player play this and the saxophone player come up with that or it, yeah. in that scenario that I just made up. And so therefore, yeah, they're going to play in unison and it, by the nature of their instruments, it's going to be octaves, which makes it more powerful. And I actually had an experience with something very similar where I had a dude telling me, yeah, this right, this chord right here, it needs to be the biggest, most powerful thing. It, it, open I, octaves I was, or open fifths. Yeah, that's what I did was octaves was <laughs> yeah. because... Uh, like he was telling me all the, the different things. Like I want that chord to just be really, really big. And a younger version of myself. Guitar is a power chord, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the same I, thing. Oh, I would have done that or I would have done like some really complicated voicing, which I love doing in a lot of my compositions. 
I, I just did octaves because I, I had transcribed a lot of film scores and then been privileged enough to actually get a hold of the actual scores to some yeah. stuff. Like I actually have a PDF of uh, the handwritten uh, notes that Gordon Goodwin did for Michael Gancino's The Incredibles, the the oh, first yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. And you know, wonderful like, score. Uh, yeah, it was like absolutely beautiful. And it, Gordon Goodwin did the arrangement at the very end. And like anytime you wanted big chords, that's what he did was octaves. And I knew that. So I put that there and just the look on that dude's face when he heard it, it was like, yes, that's what I was going for. And it's like, I, I took what he was saying and actually put it there and that's what we do. So when you want ska knowing how to grab for that tool in your toolbox, or when someone says, Oh, I want this emotion knowing how to do that or how to bring that out in the music. That's really what an arranger's job is. Yep. For the sake of time, yeah. are you ready to talk about Billy Knows JB? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the most striking thing to me, especially on my speakers, uh, <laughs> was all of the intentional distortion yes. put in, like in the high end. And I know that a lot of people would probably immediately turn the song down or think that it's their speakers or be worried about breaking their speakers. Yep. It when it kicks in, it's like, <laughs> oh, it sounds like you're breaking something. It's yes. It's a cool effect to intentionally drive the point home. I also find it really interesting that they play around with the uh, frequency spectrum in that when they have the the stereo voices, they actually turn down the high end of the guitar. Ah, okay. I wasn't and so, catching that. Yeah, uh, the guitars are double tracked is what I picked right, up on. Right, right, right. But instead of hard panning them at that point, they move them a little bit more in, not as much highs, so that the voices can feel more on top. Okay. So yeah. it's really kind of cool. I never thought about why, because I've noticed this in their, their production, because that's a lot of like their their artistry is like getting getting those sounds. Yeah. Because it obviously everyone who's listened to it, it sounds like the biscuit. It sounds like yeah. distilled new metal from that that time but it's like yeah like dancing around with like if you know anything about your history it's like it needs to sound bigger and more <laughs> badass oh yeah <laughs> and it's just like that that's that i found that really funny because you <laughs> had that same reaction when i was listening to it for the first time when it came out a few weeks ago i was just in the room with with my partner and uh i feel like limp biscuit was successful in spite of Fred Durst, <laughs> even though he's the main creative force, like right. somehow. Well, so as an engineer, and especially when I do mastering for people, everyone wants it to sound bigger. And like in the audio production world, there's a big thing that just went down with the uh, plugging company Waves. Yep. And I've had a pro problem with them for a while because one of the things they do on their a lot of their plugins is just by putting a plugin on with no processing, it turns up the signal. It increases the volume. Yep. And as human beings, if it's louder, we think it's doing more. It's better. That's why we all turn the knob up and we all just love it. And it it's hard to fight that. I find that like even when I'm mixing, uh, things creep up louder. So I try and leave plenty of head. I have like several safeguards for myself and, you know, like company like that gets called out for that and as they should because, you know, people are going to think that you're doing something when really you could actually be doing a lot of damage. And so to get stuff to sound louder for my clients, there are a lot of cool tricks you can implement and hearing them implement those tricks into the, I don't know who handled the uh, production side of that, but it was really, really well done. They kept the first part of the song a lot lower in volume, just so yeah. when that hits in, it sounds bigger. And then of course the added distortion, and then it continues to automate getting louder and louder yeah. and then making the guitars that were the loud thing 
even softer and knocking down the highs, hard panning the the voices so that what yep. you heard before, it sounds like everything else is getting further away as it pushes yeah. more into you. It evicts this really cool emotion on you. Again, there I go just talking about nothing but production in yeah. a piece that, you know, is just you know, another piece of music. Well, that we well that's enjoy. it. It's like the story almost doesn't even like matter. Like lyrically, if, if you listen to their stuff, it's so nonsensical. Yeah. And if, if you're paying attention, you're just like, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, please no one ever look up any lyrics that I've ever written. Cause I feel like that's <laughs> all of it, but yeah. Well now you just invited everyone to do so. Hey, good, good luck. I'll cut it out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I, I had a long list of songs that we could potentially look at from my end. Yeah. And, uh, you know, two of them that like we could have pulled from, like you happen to pick some stuff that was sure. more similar than not, but I had one song that uh, was by an artist named Captain, and uh, it they they have this cool thing going on where like the stereo imaging is actually wider than the voice, and mm. so it feels like yeah. it's further away the louder you get yeah. in the song. It's really really cool with like the way they handle that. And another song that was on the list was uh, something by Lizzie McAlpine. Uh, that Jacob Collier was on and helped produce. And a lot of people know Jacob's work and that's all fantastic. But her voice feels almost uncomfortably close the whole song because you you just hear all of the breath, all the sibilance. They intentionally kept that in, not to the point of detriment, but it it sounds like with the the amount of hurt she has in her voice uh, for that song, it sounds like she's just right there talking in your ear. And man, the emotional impact that that has especially as the song goes on and on, like these production choices that we're talking about all elicit emotions and Mm -hmm. all have things. So for them to decide things like, Oh, we're going to add more distortion as the song goes. So you feel like it's getting uncomfortably loud or, Oh, we're actually going to make these things that were loud even softer Mm -hmm. so that it feels like things are continuing to get loud. Those production choices as my voice continues to crack, um, those production choices are, absolutely integral to the artistic intent of these like bands, these artists, these producers. I think that like, that's all just as important as talking about, well, what was the story Yeah. or what was it that created this song? Well, for me, it's like instrumental music, listening to everything else, right? I I hardly even catch half the lyrics. Uh, Just my approach where it's like, I hear the storytelling like through instrumentation and then maybe the lyrics help key me in on that specific emotion if you right. want to ground it to something. Mm-hmm. But instrumental like music, it's like you're it's it's kind of just a feeling. We talked about this on on previous episodes right. of the show, but it's like there is a story being told that's all yeah. like, you know, opera if if you look if you want to go that far back with classical music where it's like yeah. that's why the handout programs is for the lay person to be like, Okay, here's the ground you in the narrative. Mm-hmm. They should hand them out afterwards. And so maybe during the performance, I, so that's something like I, I've talked about spoiling music on here before. When and, I compose, I like to actually not tell people what it's about before I yes. give them the thing. So like, um, I'm working on an actual symphony right now in my own spare time. That's the story of a 172 mile backpacking trek I took oh, okay. um, over a decade really? ago. Yeah, that's it was, exciting. it was really, really, it was a fun experience and, um, I think I've talked to people about this is hard for me to explain because it's how I view the world, but it's not how other people view the world. Yeah. I found out in college that not everyone just has music constantly going on in their head. <laughs> and as for as far back as I can remember, I've had a soundtrack yeah. going on in my head. And in fact, I go to sleep listening to podcasts of people just talking because the only time the music gets turned down is when someone else is 
actually like talking to me. Yeah. So like right now I actually have music just going on in my head and I just assumed my whole life that that's how people experience the world. And I found out that that's not. And so when I'm writing, I'm writing to the music that I actually hear when I'm seeing the scene. So like, uh, Two years ago, I was competing for a contract to be a composer for, uh, I believe it was an animated series, and um, they sent me some stuff, and I was just like, that. that's all I did, was I just sat there and did that, and I talked, I had the opportunity to talk to some of the other people working on it and everything, and they're like, oh, no, that's not how I do it at all, and who who really cares at the end of the day yeah. if you get the art, but I do like the idea of like, oh, I'm going to write this, and then ask someone, what do you, what do you think this is about? Like I, in my symphony, uh, there's a movement called the storm Mm -hmm. and I didn't tell them that's what it was, but, um, I, it's this, it's telling the story of when we're hiking down the mountain and over the ridge, we can actually see these two storms coming together and it's really powerful that the two storms started colliding towards us. Like yeah. the, the amount of sheer fear I had, uh, we had to divide up all of our gear because we were about to go five miles up switchbacks to get to our camp on top of the mountain. And it started raining and half of us caught hypothermia from the rain. Oh my God. I've never had it so dark outside in my whole life from this. Like we were getting pelted with hail. We had headlamps on and it's like two, three in the afternoon. Yeah. It was just like in the mountains in New Mexico. And I had this realization oh, where yeah. Yeah, like yeah. if I, I felt like I was going to die right mm-hmm. there. And I realized like, if I die here, they won't find me for two weeks Yeah, because our next checkpoint was in a week. Yeah. That was the next time they were going to like see us. Cause this was like over the course of two weeks. Mm-hmm. And it was just like this, you find something inside yourself to go. And I wanted to elicit that slowly over the course of a piece. And so like, showing that to people and asking them, what do you think this is about? It was like, Oh, that's like external, like absolute dread. Yeah. Or like other people's like that sheer amazement and wonder, like seeing what, cause it is it's all a, those things. A roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. It's a do. roller coaster for emotions. And I tried to convey that with this piece of music as I, uh, when I started writing this, uh, I was, I, I kept a journal mm-hmm. while I was like rereading that journal that that was like what was stirring inside me and the music that was playing in my head. Okay. And so I'm Uh trying to write that down as it happens because, you know, it's an in the moment type thing. Yeah. And so to recall that every time is a little different. And I think that that's like the, the power that we get in the moment when we're doing these songs is now we can go back and edit that a little bit to try and convey that emotion more, but asking someone, what do you think it means? Mm -hmm. You're giving away a certain amount of freedom to try and see if you were successful or not. And really whether you were not, that's not the the best barometer of your art, but even still it's, it's a cool experience that I love doing. Yeah. That is always fun. That's yeah. That's why I love just showing people. It's like, what do you, what do you think about it? And it's like, it's like, Oh, like, cause it's like, it's all valid. Cause then you're like, I didn't even realize that that was coming through. Like maybe something yeah. that you were experiencing, but weren't aware of mm-hmm. if someone like just holding a mirror up to you or it's like subconsciously you're writing and it's like, yeah, I guess it does kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, just having that, that epiphany when someone gives feedback on that. I, I think everyone kind of has that maybe not as like predominantly, or maybe mm-hmm. not that self-awareness. Cause I, I have that where there, there's music 
going on in my head or be thinking about it. either like it's kind of an earworm like something mm-hmm. I just listen to like I will have yeah. it on repeat and just process that for a, a long mm-hmm. while um or if something reminds me of something else I'll I'll play a song I know or when, when I'm writing I kind of that's when I'm like tuning it out I'm like okay like what's like not externally like what do I hear like you know whatever um I have more mm-hmm. of the opposite of what you're saying where like I had almost make like images to like, I, w- I would make lots of like, you know, mm-hmm. playlists um, with my dad where we'd, we'd burn CDs like yeah. back in like the, with like windows media stuff. And right. You know, we would make like playlists of stuff and just being on like car rides. Like I would just look out and like get like mm-hmm. visuals from whatever. And just kind of like um, the inverse of what yeah. you're talking where I, See, I, do- I struggle with visuals. Like really? I close my eyes and I don't really see anything. I've worked on it. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, in my large library collection over here, yeah, um, uh, there are a couple of different books on jazz improvisation uh-huh. and just you know the improvised music, even going back to the era of Bach yeah. and stuff like that, or going as far forward to Black American music and the the way like that develops and stuff. Uh, a lot of the exercises they have you do is closing your eyes and visualizing either things in music either mm-hmm. the sheet music in front of you or uh, your instrument yeah i struggle yeah. i've i've spent countless hours sitting there trying to i i don't know what it is i just it's something that my brain just hasn't developed yeah and I've, I've hoped that it's gotten stronger i can't quite tell because that's how memory works yeah but um i think it's stronger now but it's just my ear my inner ear my oral a-u-r-l imagination is just so vivid in my mind yeah. and i find that like when i can't hear something as well that's when i struggle to like try and turn the internal volume knob up and mm-hmm. i'm not exaggerating when i say a lot of the things i'm trying to envision i hear it like just as loud as if i had earbuds in like yeah. i want i want that type of reaction in order for me to compose and write because if i can't hear it that vividly how can i inspire the musicians that are eventually going to perform my art yeah. to do that. I mean, I just probably haven't spent enough time doing my own writing mm-hmm. with it. Cause I would say it's like, for me, if I had to quantify it, mm-hmm. to exp- it's like, it's about like maybe like 50%. Like, mm-hmm. like I, 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 it's pretty deep with certain things. It's like pretty fresh in my memory. It might be like yeah. closer to like 75 if I have to put a number to right. it, but it's like, it's, it's like an echo. It's like faint. And I, I hear it in mm-hmm. my, in my brain. Um, but then it's like, yeah, like I, I, a lot of times, like I just have to close my eyes because sometimes, like being at a symphony, it's distracting with everything going on. I'm just like, yeah. I gotta turn that off to like hear, like to listen to the music. If which you is remember silly. when we were listening to yes. stuff on my speakers, what did I do? Turn the monitor off. Why do you think I always do that? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I understand because yeah, yeah. Well, that's why I usually have to do other stuff while I'm listening to music because mm-hmm. if I'm just staring at the screen, I'll look at the album art. Or, yeah. What well, I mean, which is what you're supposed to do. I mean, that's what why vinyls popular is because you have something to look at while you're doing it. you have a visual mm-hmm. component to it um but yeah that's really interesting to, to hear you say that because that's especially when composing like for film that's you have to have that you have to he- yeah. you have to hear what what you're seeing you know yeah when we go in and medium. do film scores we have the big screen above mm-hmm. uh, that everyone can see with the time so that we can not only get the timing right but also the musicians out of their peripheral will be able to see or you know, while they're counting, they can kind of get an idea. It's not just for the director and everyone else. It fits the whole mood. Yep. And yeah, that's just, it's a part of the art. The The art of the whole is 
you know, contingent on that. If we go back to like Stanley Kubrick's 2001, even though they had commissioned someone to write a fantastic score, if if you ever get a chance, go listen to the actual yes. original score yep. or rewatch the movie with the score in place. Mm-hmm. It's really, really cool. But Kubrick had, um, and for those who don't know, in a lot of film score, we have temp music. Yep. And it, every frame of painting back when that YouTube channel existed had a really cool thing um, where they talked about why the Marvel Cinematic Universe doesn't really have themes and you know, like songs and stuff in terms of like the instrumental score. Right. It's because of temp music. A lot of the temp mm. music they've used now no longer has that. And by the time a director has gotten it to the point where we're going to have someone compose because of the new production cycles we work in, they want something very similar to the temp music that's there. Yeah. Kubrick had fallen in love with the classical temp music that he had put in place uh-huh. so much so that he couldn't see the film without it. Yeah. So even though they wanted all this other stuff, it was more important that it go out the way it was. Yeah. And so which one is more close to, you know, the art? Well, at the end, the director decides and he preferred that version. Yeah. And so it's really kind of fascinating that it has that because, you know, everyone knows also Sparks are Dusra, which is, you know, the 2001 A Space Odyssey theme, as, as yeah. everyone calls it. It's right. so much so that it actually overwrites the original classical piece. I, I what know. that was about. I, I had to think about that because it's such. In, it's in the zeitgeist. I was like, this wasn't originally from here, right? I'm like, no. Yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. if you didn't grow up with it, it's like it. it yeah. It's just just. But it's also so associated it with it. Fits so well. It mm-hmm. was a perfect piece of temp music. Yeah. And when you have temp music like that, it's hard not to use that. It's hard not to have that in place. Did they, I can look this up. Did they use an original recording of it or was it I, I literally believe, the temp music? I believe it was uh, the temp music. I okay. believe and they might've found a different version of it. I don't know yeah. enough about the, about, about that, but I, I do know, know enough about the history and have watched both versions kind of not back to back, but two separate days. Yeah. And like when, when I was getting more into film score work, I wanted to do my due diligence as you've, Kind of learned. I, yeah. I dive all in. I, mm-hmm. I go completely in whenever I learn a new skill or something and yeah. just like live with it for a long time. And so, yeah, it was just like absolutely amazing to find out how the temp scores impact the final version versus mm-hmm. not because directors have to surrender a lot of control to that. It's kind of like when Steven Spielberg famously approached John Williams about um, Chandler's list. Uh, and John Williams, after seeing the rough cut, was like, we need a better composer. And uh, fam- again, this is all hearsay, I should clarify. But uh, famously, Spielberg goes, I know, but they're all dead. Mm. <laughs> and so, like, you're the guy when you surrender that much control. Hopefully they can rise to the occasion or yeah. deliver something just as good, if not better than whatever temp music or ever stuff is in place. And it's a strange world to live in when something is like that, because. There is no music beforehand. If you ever watch something without music in it, it it's almost eerie because of how we see cinema nowadays. Yeah. And how tied it is into what we actually watch. If you go back to the days of the Nickelodeon, everyone thinks of the cartoon network, but yep. that comes from something. That's yep. actually the nickel show, the nickel yes. and the Lonian, where people would watch the there was music that would then play along with it. Sometimes not in sync at all. Or there was the person who 
was supposed to play the piano when they showed films and they would have a score and it would show you what's loosely supposed to happen. So you could be watching the screen as you played the music. That's so fascinating to think about. Yeah. Like, cause, cause we're so used to that, but that when you study that history, it's just so interesting that they, that they had already thought of this or it's like, it's like, we can't just have, just be playing like hearing, you have to have something to go over the noise of the tape. Well, machine. they tried several different you know? things. You can go back and they tried so much yeah. and it's kind of like, well, what sticks, what doesn't. And again, we go with artistic intention. We go with whatever, as the technology goes through, I had to play, um, uh, principal or I guess first trumpet in, uh, the, uh, musical singing in the rain a few years mm-hmm. ago. And I think it was 2018, 2019. Okay. Uh, we were doing, uh, some shows with that. And that whole play takes, or Broadway musical takes place when the talkies first start. Yeah. And there's a famous scene from Singing in the Rain where uh, the lead actress, who's you know supposed to be very beautiful, this famous actress and everything, she has a terrible voice. And yep. she now has to sing and do all this other yep. stuff. And they're not used to working with microphones and they don't have shotgun microphones. So she's like, talking and moving her head around and the microphone is like not picking it up. And so like that in the production, it's really cool. Cause they just like turn her voice on and off yeah. as she's like moving away from the microphone. With and the, the director- rendition of it on, yeah. on stage. And yeah. On that our stage version of it in the original Broadway, they did something different yeah. and then with, uh, you know, subsequent, like the 2009, uh, Broadway cat, or I believe that was in London. They did in 2009, okay. uh, yeah, just different technologies to get the same type of result actors had to learn how to work in a new medium. Well, so too did the film score. So too did everything else. We composed something for it, or we would take existing work, get the rights to it, adapt it, all the different things that we have to do Mm -hmm. in order to work in this industry and all the different things. It's again, you surrender a certain amount of control Mm -hmm. to either the performers. If they're doing it live, you surrender a certain amount of that to the composer who is writing the score. And hopefully it, gels or doesn't or yeah. whatever at the end if it all comes together just right it's amazing thank you so much for having me today my my guest hosting me in a different space today yeah and I hope of course enjoy and uh, if anyone wants any of my work you can contact me through my website it's under construction because i built it a few years ago but uh <laughs> you can contact me through that or any of the other social media it's just miles belvin find me on the internet absolutely Anything else you need to say? That's it. All right, man. I thank you. Thanks thank for you coming so to my studio and hanging out. Yeah, it's it's a vibe. So <laughs> I I inspire to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I did I hope everyone else at home enjoyed it. We're on episode three now, Revenge of.
Thank you.